You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. All right, so the Bible reading is Acts chapter 9. Um, you'll find it on the welcome card behind my head or there's Bibles at the ends of the rows. Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man, and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Thanks, Tracy. Uh, I'm not sure if this microphone's supposed to be on that angle. It looks unusual, but hey, I'm the guy up here with the the stick, so what do I know about um, vision? Uh, But anyway, uh, it's great to be back from long service leave. Uh, Thanks to everyone who uh, prayed for me and sent me an encouraging text or something. Uh, The Lord really answered your prayers. I, I do feel refreshed. Uh, and uh, thanks to everyone who had a, had a crack at preaching. Uh, I hope you guys have been encouraged. I certainly enjoyed listening to the sermon podcasts. Uh, that was great. Uh, also, say uh, happy Father's Day to all the dads. And, and we all want to be thankful for dads, but I particularly want to say uh, I hope God's comforting those who are grieving the loss of their dad today. Uh, maybe for some of you that's the first Father's Day you're experiencing without your dad around. Uh, so may you know the comfort of your, your heavenly father. Uh, as we give thanks for our dads as well. Uh, I did bring this up. 
I guess I'm conscious that I haven't been around for three months. I'm not sure how many new people uh, are here. Uh, but uh, if you don't know, I have a vision impairment. And one of the things I did on my long service leave uh, was get some training in how to use a cane like this. Uh, and so you might see me around with a cane. And I guess I brought it up both just to say, uh, if you're new to DPC in particular, you might think, hey, why is one of the pastors walking around with a big stick? Is there something spiritual about that? Well, not really. It's just to help me see. Uh, but also, I've been surprised by how much of a big deal it was for me to start using a cane like this. Uh, because what it did for me was it made an invisible weakness something that was largely invisible to lots of people, automatically visible. And that was quite a big emotional deal for me. And so I thought I'd just kind of share that before I uh, preach today, because I suspect that all of us have some sort of invisible weakness or disability or some area of life that we're struggling with. And we want to be a church where it's okay to go visible with that, right? Uh, to go public with our weakness. We're going to talk a bit more about that in this sermon. But hopefully me walking around with a stick, whenever you see it, you might say, oh, DPC is a church where it's okay to have an area of weakness and not to keep it a secret. Um, anyway, that's just a little sermon before the sermon. Uh, good. Uh, please have Acts 9 open. There's an outline of my sermon, usual stuff. Let's pray and then we'll take a look at Acts 9. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the chance to gather together this afternoon. Please... Uh, fill me with your spirit, please fill us all with your spirit indeed, that our eyes might be opened uh, to see more of our Lord Jesus uh, and particularly how he is risen and alive and uh, what he is up to uh, this day. Uh, in his name we pray. Amen. So I, I do wonder what you think uh, Jesus is doing today. As you came into church this afternoon, I don't know what's going on in your life. Uh, we've all got our own areas of, of suffering, our joys, our sorrows, our hopes, our dreams, our anxieties, our concerns, areas of brokenness and pain. Uh, in the midst of all of that, as you sit here in church this afternoon or maybe you're watching online, what is it that you think Jesus is doing? You know, if you've come along to church for the first time today, maybe you're not a Christian, uh, you might think, well, what do you mean? What is Jesus doing? As far as I know, he died a bit over 2,000 years ago. His body's lying undiscovered in a grave in Israel somewhere. Oh, but of course, if you're here and you're a Christian, that's not what you believe. Oh, you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus is alive today. But if you believe Jesus is alive, what do you think he's doing? I reckon lots of Christians kind of think Jesus is, well, he's just enjoying his spiritual retirement, right? He's, he's had his kind of hard years of ministry on earth and now he's kicking back on a heavenly banana lounge. You know, he's working on his veggie patch or enjoying a good glass of wine or whatever you think people do in their retirement. Like, that's Jesus. What is Jesus doing today? Well, in today's passage from Acts chapter 9, I think we see that Jesus is doing something really wonderful. Maybe it's not what you've thought but Jesus is doing something wonderful, particularly for people like us. People like us, who I said with my cane, people like us who have, well, we've got areas of weakness. In fact, our lives are pretty messy. And what we see in Acts chapter 9 is that Jesus is pursuing, saving and welcoming even the most messed up of people by his powerful and yet gentle grace. That's what Jesus is doing today. I'm going to hopefully show you that from these verses. 
Jesus is pursuing, saving and welcoming even the most messed up of people by his powerful and yet gentle grace. So don't don't take my word for it. Have Acts chapter 9 open. We're going to look first at verses 1 and 2 where we see that Jesus pursues Saul uh, even though Saul's life is incredibly messed up. Now, as we look at this passage, uh, some of you might be more familiar with the New Testament. You might know, or later on in the New Testament, Saul is also known as Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a whole bunch of the New Testament. Uh, But for today, I'm going to refer to him as Saul. That's the name in the passage. Uh, So that's the name we'll run with today. So verses 1 and 2, Jesus pursues Saul, even though his life is messed up. Take a look in in verse 1. Uh, Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, if you're not very familiar uh, with who Saul is, or maybe you're just kind of, hey, we're coming back to Acts and I need to refresh my memory, if you've got a Bible open, you could flick back to the end of chapter 7, verse 58. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 58, you'll see that when uh, some uh, people dragged one of the first leaders in the early church, a deacon named Stephen, they dragged him outside the city uh, to stone him to death and they put their coats at the feet of this young man named Saul. And then if you scan to chapter 8, verse 1, you'll see that Saul thought it was a really good thing that they executed Stephen. He approved of it. See, Saul was someone who thought that Jesus was a blasphemer, someone who was claiming to be God when he wasn't, someone who was cursed by God. So Saul thought he and his people were doing God's will, not just to execute Stephen, but to try and get rid of all the Christians. So if you've got Acts chapter 8 open, you'll see in verses 1 to 3, Uh, that Saul's not satisfied with getting rid of Stephen, right? He and his crew are going from house to house in Jerusalem, trying to flush out every Christian they can find so they can arrest them, imprison them, ultimately to execute at least some of them. But some of them get away. You saw that. Remember, maybe you remember that in Acts chapter 8. They're scattered from Jerusalem uh, because of the persecution. Uh, They go around talking about Jesus as they go, And here in Acts 9, we see that some of them have gotten as far as Damascus. And Saul wants to get them. He wants to arrest them. So take a look in verse 2, or the end of verse 1 into verse 2. Luke tells us that Saul went to the high priest in Jerusalem uh, and he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus uh, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, that's to the way of Jesus, uh, men or women, uh, that he might um, take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. And if you kind of scan down to verse 14, uh, you'll see that these letters are like what we might call arrest warrants. Right? The high priest in Jerusalem is authorising Saul if he tracks down any Christian in Damascus. He has the authority to arrest them and take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem to be tried if they're convicted as being someone who belongs to the way of Jesus They'll either remain in prison, they'll be flogged, they might be executed like Stephen. So what do you notice about Saul? I think we notice that he's not someone who's warmly disposed towards Jesus and his people. He's not someone who's passionately seeking after Jesus. He's not someone who was brought up in a Christian home and, well, of course he believed. He's not someone who's committed to trusting Jesus. 
Indeed, from Jesus' perspective, Saul's life couldn't really be more messed up. He's literally trying to destroy Jesus' people. And yet, Jesus pursues him. Jesus loves him. Jesus' compassion is overflowing for Saul. He wants Saul to be his, to be a part of his people. And I reckon that's a real encouragement for people like us. I don't think Saul's the only person in the world who's ever had a messed up life. Certainly I've got plenty of mess. I shared, like my my life is a bit messy in the sense of losing my eyesight. Uh, The other night for the first time, uh, uh, I said to Gabby, it was about 8.30 at night, and I got the munchies, you know, I needed to go down to to Food Works at the corner uh, for some health food. And uh, and so I said to her, I'm not going to take my torch, I'm going to go just with my cane uh, send the search party out in two hours if I'm not back, you know. Anyway, and so, but I made it. But my life is a bit messy. I'm trying to get used to, the, like, how to get around. Physically messy, emotionally messy. I get insecure, often discouraged, like probably you do. Anxious, depressed. My, my character, you know, I'm, I'm far from perfect, Right? unnecessarily proud and defensive, stubborn, get impatient and irritable with the kids. Gabby's been sick for the last couple of days. It's been a win that the kids have, most of the time, had clothes on and uh, had some food in their stomach. You know, like, life is messy. My life is messy. And so it's wonderful news, isn't it, that Jesus pursues even the most messed up of people. Don't think that Jesus is somehow only interested in us once we clean ourselves up or we get our life together or we sort some things out. Jesus is in the business. He kind of specialises in pursuing people like Saul. Why? Because it makes him look great. It It magnifies his grace and his mercy. If we can just be honest and say, man, I'm messed up, but Jesus is a wonderful saviour. He loves me and he's gracious to me and he's compassionate to me. He pursued someone like me. Well, that's verses 1 and 2. Jesus, what's he up to today? He's pursuing people like Saul, uh, even though his life is incredibly messed up. Uh, maybe take a look at verses 3 to 9. Uh, we see that Jesus is not just oh, he's pursuing Saul to save him. And he saves him by his grace. His grace, which is both powerful and gentle. So take a look uh, at uh, verse 3. Let me find where I am up to. Verse 3. Luke says, As Saul neared Damascus uh, on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, we we might read this and think, well, Damascus is just a short stroll up the street. It's actually 240 kilometres away. Uh, so between verses 2 and 3, there's probably been about a week's journey. Right? Saul and his crew are, are right on the outside of Damascus. And this light flashes around them, kind of completely engulfing them. And this is an incredibly powerful experience, a powerful display mm-hmm. of Jesus' grace. And just to take a look at kind of the details here. Uh, Luke says this happened suddenly, like it, it happened abruptly, unexpectedly. It's not a like slowly building thing that Saul had lots of time to get used to. This glorious light just burst onto the scene. 
And later on, you could read Acts chapter 26, which is where Saul is telling his own account of what happened here in Acts chapter 9. And in that passage, you'll see that Saul says all of this happened at about midday. And he says the light that flashed around them was brighter than the blazing light of the midday sun. Have you ever tried to go outside on a hot summer's day in the middle of the day and look right at the sun you know, without kind of high-powered sunglasses? Like, that, that's really bright. This is a powerful experience of Jesus' glory, of Jesus' grace. And so you might say, well, of course Saul believed in Jesus. How could he resist? Like, Jesus just kind of brutally forced him to believe. It's just a display of sheer power. And yet, that's not the full story. Jesus' grace is also gentle in Saul's life. Again, if you look in Acts chapter 26, uh, Saul adds in that actually the first words that Jesus said to him after appearing to him in this glorious uh, kind of flash of light is, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And you say, that's really helpful. It's like really edifying to know that Saul's kicking against the goads. Of course, you don't say that because you don't know what a goad is, probably. right? But a goad... In, in uh, Jesus' day, a goad was like a short stick that a farmer had uh, and they would use it to kind of gently poke and prod and guide their oxen along the right path. Say, this is the way we're going to go. Now, of course, if a farmer had a really stubborn ox, they might kick back against the goad uh, and then they'd cop the sharp tip in their hoof. Uh, and Jesus is saying to Saul, spiritually speaking, that's what he's been doing. It's not just that Jesus burst onto the scene just outside Damascus. Right behind the scenes, Jesus has been gently poking and prodding Saul, trying to guide him to the right path of trusting and following him. And Saul's been stubbornly resisting. Saul's been kicking back against Jesus, refusing to trust in him. And in the process, it's been causing himself all sorts of grief. But Jesus' uh, gentle grace, he says, okay, Saul, have it your way. Now I'm going to appear to you in glory. And so Saul's resistance is over. He's seen Jesus powerful. He's experiencing Jesus powerful and yet gentle grace. Uh, And if you look in verse 4, if I can find that in my notes. uh, If you look in verse 4, Luke says, Saul fell to the ground And heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, I think Saul falling to the ground physically here is kind of a picture of what's going on spiritually. Saul was a proud man. He was a man who was kind of shaking his fist at God, rebelliously opposing God. And yet here, when Jesus appears to him in all his glory, when he really sees Jesus, so we sang earlier uh, a prayer, really, uh, that we pray that Jesus' glory would fill our eyes. When that really happens, you're not standing on your feet. You're like Saul, falling to the ground in humble worship. Now, that's what's happened for Saul. Of course, Saul doesn't know the voice of Jesus. He's not a follower of Jesus. So look in verse 5. It's almost like Saul's on the ground. You maybe picture him kind of lifting his cloak up, saying, who are you, Lord? Like, who, where is this voice coming from? So Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
Do you notice about what Jesus says there? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You notice what he doesn't say? I am Jesus and you're persecuting my people. That would make maybe a bit more sense, wouldn't it? But Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. How is it that Saul is persecuting Jesus? It's because of the deep spiritual connection that exists between Jesus and his people. It's kind of a, a, a union. Uh, there's a bunch of pictures for that, you know, vine and branches. And uh, what are some others? Can something think of one? Marriage, yeah, yeah, intimate connection, union, right? Uh, so another one is the body of Christ, right? Jesus is the head of the body, and his people are the rest of the body, the body of Christ. What does that mean? Well, in this instance, it means that if Jesus' people are suffering and being persecuted, Jesus experiences that. He feels it. So Jesus is saying to Saul, Saul, every time you unjustly bound someone's wrists together, I felt that. I didn't just see it, Saul. I felt it as if it was happening to my own body. Every time you beat someone, Every time you flogged someone in Jerusalem, I felt that as if it was happening to my own body. Every stone that rained down on the body of Stephen until he died, Jesus is saying, I felt it, Saul. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And again, I think this has got to be encouraging for us. If you're experiencing a time of suffering... We've got to know that Jesus is not, uh, like the Christian God, is not distant and disinterested and detached from us in our suffering. Right? We are his body. And so he feels our suffering as if it's happening to his own body. If you're insulted for the sake of Jesus, Jesus doesn't just hear it from his heavenly banana lounge. Right? Jesus feels that. If you're here today and you're anxious in your body, Jesus feels your anxiety. If you're in pain in your body, Jesus feels that. If you've got wounds, Jesus feels those wounds. Jesus cares for his body, the body of Christ. If you're a Christian, you're a part of his body. He cares. If you've got a wound, whether it's physically or emotionally, Jesus cares for that wound as if it's on his own body, tenderly and with compassion, Wanting it to be healed. I think it's a wonderful truth. Maybe a rogue lead. Oh, so in verse 6, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's keep going. In verse 6, Jesus says to Saul, Now get up and go into the city, uh, and you will be told what you must do. So we've had Saul falling down. Uh, which I'm saying is a picture of his kind of humility, his worship of Jesus. Now he's called to get up, which is the word that's often used to describe Jesus' resurrection. It's arise, Saul. And so in many ways, this, this experience that Saul's having on the road to Damascus, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's Saul's conversion moment. But the old Saul, the Saul that was intent on destroying Jesus' people, that Saul has fallen to the ground on the road outside Damascus. That Saul will never get up again. That Saul is dead. And the new Saul has been called to life by the power of Jesus. Now, Saul, get up 
And that Saul's going to, not intent on destroying Jesus' people, but intent on living for Jesus and his people. Now and forever. And that's why Saul, also known as Paul, as I mentioned later on, can say in, uh, earlier on rather, can say in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. You say, the old me fell to the ground and died on a road outside Damascus. That me no longer lives, but Christ lives in me by the power of his spirit. So the life I now live, Saul says, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But Saul has been made new by Jesus, so much so that he wants to do what pleases Jesus. He wants to obey Jesus, and Jesus expects that. Notice Jesus says, go into the city and I'll tell you what you must do. Jesus in John 14 says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And that change has happened in Saul's life. He knows that the Son of God loved him and gave himself for him. And so he wants to please Jesus and obey him. In verse 7, while all this is happening, Saul's companions have little idea what's going on. You see that in verse 7? They hear some sort of sound, a powerful sound, but they hear no specific words. It's very clear that this is a personal moment between Jesus and Saul. Jesus wants Saul to be his. He wants to save Saul and he wants to send Saul out to have a particular mission in the world. So look in verse 8. Uh, Saul obeys Jesus and everything goes great. Right? He gets up, well, not quite. He gets up and he's blind. Well, that's, you know, that's not so good. Why is that? I don't think it's just that Saul's seen a blinding light. Oh, this is just a natural consequence. I think, again, it's a picture of how Jesus' powerful and gentle grace has humbled Saul. That's what always happens. Saul thought uh, in his pride, he confidently thought that he was going to march into Jerusalem uh, because he could clearly see who Jesus was and who his people were and and what they deserved. And yet now, having met with Jesus and experienced Jesus' grace in saving him, Saul knows that, that he actually was completely blind to who Jesus was, completely blind to who Jesus' people were and what they deserved. He's been humbled. He has to be humbly led into Damascus by the hand. He's not proudly marching into Damascus. That's a very humbling thing. As someone who is humbly led at times, dependent on other people, it is quite a humbling thing. So Saul, a proud man, has been humbled by the grace of Jesus. Let me say, if you profess to have experienced the grace of Jesus... Uh, but you're never humbled in this way. If you somehow think that you are able to make yourself seen by your own works, spiritually speaking, right here, Saul can't do anything to make himself seen, can he? It's a wonderful gift of God's grace. Likewise, we can do nothing to make ourselves see spiritually. That ought to humble us. If you can see any truth of who Jesus is, It's a wonderful gift of his grace. 
that should really humble us. Yeah, the, the classic song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, like Saul here, but now I see. Not because I worked myself into spiritual insight, <laughs> but because I was saved by Jesus' powerful and gentle grace. Now that's Saul in verses 3 to 9. So Jesus, what's he up to today? He's pursuing people who are really messed up. He's saving people by his grace. And verses 10 to 19, he's welcoming people into his family through the ministry of other Christians like Ananias. So in verse 10, there's this disciple of Jesus in Damascus named Ananias. Like he's just done with Saul, Jesus appears to Ananias. He calls out to him in a vision I bet notice the difference, like Saul doesn't recognise the voice of Jesus. Jesus says in various places in the Gospels, my people hear my voice and they know it. Well, that's Ananias, he hears the voice of his Lord, he, he is no doubt who it is. In verse 11, Jesus says to Ananias, I go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. I guess uh, two quick things uh, to notice about this first. The, the first is uh, sometimes you might read an account like this with kind of supernatural things happening or Jesus appearing to people in a vision, calling to people out of a vision. Uh, and you might think, well, that means this is the stuff of fantasy. It's a fairy tale. It's a nice story. It's a myth that someone made up a few hundred years after Jesus lived. It has no real grounding in history. And yet, what does Luke say? Well, Jesus says, Jesus says uh, to Ananias, go over to Judas's house on Straight Street. Now, let me tell you, you go home tonight, look up Straight Street in Damascus, and you'll find that it's still a street in Damascus. But this is a real story happening to real people in a real city on a real street in Judas's house on Straight Street in Damascus. Yes, there's supernatural stuff going on, but it's not the stuff of fantasy. It's an historical record of what's going on. And again, notice the, the deep spiritual change that's happened in Saul's life. But right here we see that he's praying. Jesus knows that. At the end of verse 9, we saw that in his three-day period of blindness, uh, he, he's uh, not eating or drinking anything. I don't think that's just because, I don't know, he couldn't find any food because he was blind. No, like this is a, a period of a three-day period of prayer and fasting for Saul. He's saying, hey, Lord, uh, you've come and appeared to me. I've got no idea what you're doing with my life. I'm seeking after you. I want some clarity on what's going on here. Uh, and so in verse 12, that's what happens. Jesus gives him a little bit more clarity, right? And you notice Jesus gives uh, him a vision where he sees Ananias coming to him to lay hands on him and restoring his sight. Well, that seems to be all good, except Ananias isn't on board yet. Verse 13, Ananias says, Lord, I've heard uh, many reports uh, about this man Saul and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And verse 14, now he's come to Damascus to do harm to us here too. You hear what Ananias is saying? Why would I go and visit him when everything in my body wants to run away from him? That's the only common sense thing to do. I'm not handing myself over to Saul on a silver platter so that he can arrest me and take me back to Jerusalem as a prisoner? 
But Jesus doubles down in verse 15, doesn't he? He says, no, go. Reiterates his command, although he does give a bit more context for why Ananias should go. Notice that? He says he's chosen Saul. Out of all the people on the planet, Jesus says, I've got something special for Saul. I've chosen him to be something, uh, to be my chosen instrument, Jesus says. Uh, Instrument there, you know, I've got a musical background. It has nothing to do with music, right? Instrument, it's a kind of clay jar or vessel. This is a common picture in the Bible. We as human beings, we're weak and fragile, full of brokenness. But Jesus, the great potter, as it were, who moulded us and shaped us, can take us up and use us for his purposes, to display his power and his goodness and his glory through our weakness and brokenness. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm going to do with Saul. He's going to be one of my instruments for a particular purpose. And notice his purpose is twofold. It's to proclaim Jesus' name and suffer for Jesus' name. Two parts to it are to proclaim Jesus' name. The name of Jesus is a really big deal in the book of Acts. Let me give you some verses. Acts chapter 2, verse 21. You could look that up later on if you like. You might remember Peter quotes from the prophet Joel. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, Peter says to the lame man in Jerusalem, stand up and walk in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter's speaking to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and he says those somewhat famous words, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now that could make you think that the name of Jesus is some kind of magical code word that someone just has to say once in their life and they'll be saved, right? You're saved by the name of Jesus. I don't think that's what the book of Acts is saying. It's saying the name of Jesus represents who he is and what he came to do. Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of the eternal God in human form. He's Jesus, which means <clears throat> the one who came to save people from their sins. He's the Christ. He's God's king who's come to establish and rule over God's kingdom. But there's saving power in the name of Jesus, not because it's some magical code word, but because the name of Jesus tells us who he is and what he came to do. It captures the good news. So Jesus says, Saul's going to proclaim my name to all the nations of the world, and in the process, he's going to suffer for my name. And we saw earlier that because we're deeply connected with Jesus, that means that when we suffer, he suffers. Here we see that the reverse is also true, that because Jesus suffered, his people will suffer. There's a uniqueness to Saul's suffering. He's going to be an apostle of Jesus. He has a special mission. Like there's something unique about that, but this is true for every Christian too. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are you, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Right? Notice that this suffering that Christians can expect to experience for the sake of Jesus, it's not just something that we put up with. It's not something to grin and bear. It's something to rejoice in. It's a blessing 
It's a, it's a privilege. That sounds weird to us, right? But Peter and John, who were listening to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, they got it. You could flick back and read Acts chapter 5 later on. Peter and John are flogged by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And in verse 41, we read that the apostles left the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish ruling council, and what were they were doing? They were rejoicing. And they were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the sake of the name of Jesus. But not suffering disgrace because their behaviour was disgraceful, right? There are plenty of Christians who think, oh, I'm suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. No, you're just suffering disgrace because you're being a disgraceful person, frankly. Right? There are Christians, professing Christians, who are like that. But suffering disgrace genuinely just because you're seeking to be faithful to Jesus, that's something to rejoice in. That's, something, that's a moment when you know that the blessing of God is upon you. Blessed are you when this happens, Jesus says. And that's not because we're masochists as Christians who love to experience pain, right? It's because as a Christian, you know that Jesus is alive, so you know that this life is not all there is. And so you know that even if you suffer now, there's glory later. You know that if you suffer for the sake of Jesus, as Jesus promises, great is your reward in heaven. You don't need your best life now because you've got eternity to enjoy your best life. So Jesus says to Saul, uh, Jesus says to Ananias, Saul's going to learn how much he's going to suffer for the sake of my name. He's going to proclaim my name and suffer for my name. But first, Saul needs to be welcomed into Jesus' people. And that's really Ananias' main ministry. So I'll just briefly mention a few ways in which Jesus is communicating, Saul really is welcomed into my people. And notice that Ananias goes over to uh, Judas's house on Straight Street and he heals Saul, not just by walking in and speaking a word, thou sight be healed, right? No, he, he places his hands on Saul. That's an expression of love and inclusion and welcome, of physical affection, saying, Saul, you really are welcomed into Jesus' people. And then notice uh, that how Ananias refers to Saul. What does he say? He says, brother Saul. That's a pretty big change for Ananias, isn't it? Only a couple of verses before this, he thought Saul was an enemy to be run away from. And now he's saying, Saul, I see now that you're a dear brother in Christ. Someone who really is a part of Jesus' family. Someone to be loved and welcomed and accepted, not avoided or shunned. And then notice that Saul is baptised with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit at the end of verse 17. That's a, another key mark of being a part of Jesus' people. In Romans chapter 8, that the, the Holy Spirit's described as the Spirit of Sonship. What does that mean? It just means that the Spirit enables us to cry out to God as our Heavenly Father. That's the most important father. As we said on this Father's Day, the most important father you can have is your heavenly father. And that's the work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit, Romans 5, poured out into our hearts that assures us of God's love for us as our father. So Saul is filled with the Spirit and is assured that he really is a part of Jesus' family. 
And then I take it in verse 18, there's some debate about this, but I think in verse 18, he's baptised, he gets up, we're told, his sight is healed, and he is baptised. I take that to be baptised in water. You might think it's a spirit, that's fine. I think it's baptised with water, and I think it's saying it's Ananias uh, observing that Saul really is a part of God's people, uh, and so he should receive water baptism, the public and visible sign of him being welcomed into the family of God. That's important. And that welcome and acceptance from Ananias to Saul, how do they give expression to it? Notice at the very end, they eat together. Saul took some food and drink and regained his strength. Now, I don't know if Ananias cooked this meal. I like to think he did. The text doesn't tell us. But I like to think that Ananias was whipping up a storm in Judas's kitchen, you know, preparing some special meal to, to welcome Saul into the family of God. And to say, Saul, you're, you're a friend, a brother, and I want to I show hospitality to you. I want to welcome you. Let's get around this table together. What's Jesus doing today as we sit here in church? He's still doing this, actively doing this same thing. Not with Saul over and over again, but what's he doing? He's saving, he's pursuing saving and welcoming even the most messed up of people by his powerful and gentle grace. So let me just ask, are you on board with what Jesus is doing in the world? Sometimes as Christians we're like, well, what am I going to do to change the world? Well, Jesus is doing things to change the world. Are we on board with what Jesus is doing? If you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you see a bit of yourself in Saul, you sense that Jesus has been gently poking and prodding you for quite some time and you've been stubbornly resisting. Well, today's the day to receive Jesus' grace, to fall to the ground and worship Jesus, to trust that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, for all your failures to live his way, for all your stubborn resistance of him. He died on the cross for that. And he was raised to life so that he could give you new life, both now and forever. Why don't you get on board with what Jesus is doing by receiving his grace? And for us as a church, what does it mean? I think it means first that if Jesus is in the business of saving messed up people, then we've got to be a church where it's safe to, you know, everyone walk around with a cane. Not really, but like it's safe to, to say, hey, I've got some mess in my life. I've got some weakness in my life. And Jesus is in the business of saving people like me. And then we've got to be the sort of church that's seeking to connect with people in our wider community. Because let me tell you, they've got their own struggles. We've got our mess, they've got their mess, and they need to hear the wonderful news of what Jesus is doing today, don't they? That Jesus is in the business of pursuing, saving and welcoming even the most messed up of people in his wonderful grace. So let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, thank you that we can uh, uh, hear you uh, speak to us through your word this day. I pray that uh, as we reflect on your word, as we sing in response to your word, as we see the good news of the gospel and we share in the Lord's Supper, I pray, Father, that you might uh, show us again our mess, our sin, our weakness, uh, that we might rejoice all the more in your grace. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.